Seth's basement. It's Seth hanging out with you tonight, and I've got a packed show in store for you. Tonight, along with our usual Q&A and rants, I have for you the top 20 classic alternative songs that are lesser known. Yeah, I could go with mainstream alternative songs, classic alternative type songs, but these are the songs that fall under the radar and don't get a lot of airplay. But first of all, my feelings on the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the repercussions of her passing. Okay, the other night, like everyone else, I was ready for a fun Friday night. I was settling in for the night and I got a text from a friend of mine, turn on the news, and I didn't question them, went ahead and did it. And then I found out my heart sank for no reason, and we know why. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg ultimately lost her fight with cancer. See what you will about her judicial decisions, she was a powerful voice not only on the bench but away from her duties as well. Oh, and unlike what we have today, she embraced the other side of the Supreme Court as she treasured her colleagues as they did her. What a novel concept in this day and age, where if you're not a Trump supporter, you're a fucking snowflake, and if you're a Trump supporter, you're a fucking deplorable. Now this will likely go down the route of Trump nominating someone real soon. He mentioned it on Twitter yesterday, and you know that the pick will come out sometime in the next week. Now, Justice uh, John Paul Stevens was confirmed in 19 days. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, 33 days. Justice Ginsburg, 42 days. So, in the confirmed justices in my lifetime, those were confirmed in the 44-day time frame that were here before the election. Now, since, since the last turn of the century, 1900, You've had 61 Supreme Court justices that have been nominated and confirmed. 70% of them, 43, were confirmed under 45 days. Now, 29 presidents have had election year or lame duck vacancies on the Supreme Court, all of whom nominated someone. Eight times before the election, when the other party controlled the Senate, only one succeeded. Okay. Ten times before the election, when the President and the Senate are controlled by the same party, nine succeeded. Now, even though it's been erased from the blog blog, talk radio archive, I was all for Merrick Garland going through the process of how a president is to appoint a nominee for consideration for a Supreme Court vacancy. You can disagree all you want with the McConnell rule, which was previously known as the Biden rule, but you should describe it accurately. It states that it's no confirmations in a presidential election year when the Senate and presidency are held by different parties. That does not apply this year. Also, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the United States Constitution contains presidential authority to appoint Supreme Court justices. Nowhere does it say except in an election year, nor does it specify any time frame. 
technically any president could nominate on their first day in office or their last day in office. It's the role of the Senate to interview and advise on these picks to the president whether they are qualified for service on the Supreme Court or not. And then you go with a vote in the judiciary after after all the meetings and everything with the committee. If it passes through committee debate on the full Senate floor, and then at the 51 vote, the closed debate succeeds, an up or down vote for confirmation. What we're seeing in the wake of the death of Justice Ginsburg is total hypocrisy at best. Democrats who were for the nomination of Judge Carlin are screaming that now the process can wait till either January with a, with a President Biden or 2025 if Trump gets a second term. Republicans who are against Judge Garland's appointment feel now that, well, we have to do our duty via the Constitution. It goes like this. Congress doesn't do their jobs unless it's politically advantageous at times, and instead they stick to their partisan guns at the expense of the Constitution and the American people. I respect the wishes of Justice Ginsburg, but the painful truth is that Republicans are going to attempt to fill that seat before the end of Trump's first term, or before he left office. The tune from the right and the left, much different as it was in 2016. Look it up, because it was big time. It's really fucking pathetic that the Constitution is being used as an equal opportunity pinata by Republicans and Democrats. Let it also be known that it was a month after Justice Scalia died that Garland was nominated. If you're going to complain, understand this last point about the Senate filibusters and how they relate to this open seat vacancy. You see, Senate Republicans considered a nuclear option in 2005 but didn't pull the trigger on the one involving cabinet picks and federal bench appointments, you know, the lower bench appointments. The Senate Democrats, led by Harry Reid, pulled the official trigger in 2013. It opened the door wide open for Mitch McConnell and Republicans in 2017 to pull the trigger on the nuclear option for Supreme Court appointments. And Schumer has already indicated that if Biden gets in and Democrats take the Senate, goodbye 60 vote filibuster in the Senate for legislation as well. I've said time and again, whoever is in the majority, come January, new congressional class, they need to nuke both nuclear options that are on the books or store all closing debates at 60 votes and put in the Senate rules not to allow these nuclear options again. Now, there are a few implications to Justice Ken Burns' passing. Number one, Trump will likely nominate a woman the next few days. Two, a Senate vote seems most likely during the lame duck session of Congress after the election. Three, this vacancy gives Trump the chance to reframe the presidential race away from the coronavirus. Four, the vacancy will drive up turnout and energy on both sides, but could wind up motivating the right more than the left. Five, this vacancy means 
Banks ticket splitting less likely in November, increasing the odds that Republicans hold the Senate. 6. Few Republican senators will care with being charged with rank hypocrisy. The only four I think are Senators Murkowski, Collins, Romney, and Gardner. 7. There will be immense pressure from the left for Democrats to pack the Supreme Court if they win the Senate majority. 8. The coming fight will further erode public confidence in the neutrality and independence of the courts. And lastly, Justice Roberts will still be the sole swing vote on the Supreme Court. Although Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have both ruled on the side of law and have personal views as well, so those, could, those two could possibly be swing votes on the bench as well. Now the final votes will go down to basically four Republicans and one Democrat as to whether or not this pick and mover may be, will be confirmed. The sole Democrat to watch is Senator Joe Manchin, and your four Republicans to watch are the aforementioned Senators Murkowski, Romney, Gardner, and Collins. In the event of a 50-50 tie, VP Pence is the tie-breaking vote and will likely cast a yes vote on the new justice. But let's say the shoe was on the other foot and it was a President Clinton facing an uphill election, or President Trump, and a Democrat Senate. Senator Schumer would be saying, give us your pick. we got to have this pick. And they would want to fill that vacancy. They would want the president, whether it be Trump or Clinton, to fill the vacancy right now. It is a double standard. Okay? As black GOP would easily remind us right now, it's all politics. It's sad but true, and that's the bottom line. Okay. So a lot of you knew I grew up in the... No... I grew, I grew up in the 80s, and I was born in 1974. A lot of these songs on the countdown, I really got to know either in the early days of MTV or on WVGO, which was at one point adult alternative slash modern rock from 91 to 96, where they had a flashback cafe at noon, as well as on some weekends where you get classic alternative music. Here are my top 20 classic alternative cuts that you may or may not know. Enjoy the list. Coming in at number 20 is In Between Days by The Cure from 1985. This was was from the Head in the Door album from 85, which started to turn from the early goth rock days to the more of the pop alternative sound for Robert Smith and the guys. Now, the album still follows the age-old concept of The Cure albums as far as their concepts go. Robert meets girl. Robert talks to girl. Robert kisses girl. Robert falls in love. Robert has sex. Robert gets dumped. But this is a nice little nugget for Cure fans, and also anyone who's a fan of 70s, 80s classic alternative. Coming in at number 19 is Rise by Public Image Limited from 86. This was from the album release, and is John Lydon's way of shedding his past with the Sex Pistols, and really taking an avant-garde approach. Now, a lot of people usually ignore Lydon's work with PIL, and it really shows when you get Lydon into an interview and people, much of John's may just focus on the Sex Pistols. Really, a song by Public Image Limited or PIL 
and the good things that they still tour from time to time. Coming at number 18 is The Great Commandment, Great Commandment by Camouflage from 87. This is a great old Sims, Sims tune, and it actually was recorded three years prior. It landed on the Voices and Images album in 87, and honestly, it's a song that cut on in clubs and in Europe first. It took a little while to get here in the States. Really cool band, very unique sound, and a great song that you should listen to at least once. Coming at number 17 is Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. Yes, the title track from the album that a few years ago the great Adam and decided to tour and do the album in its entirety is solid shit. Yeah, we know Adam and had the one-hit wonder getting two shoes. Don't drink, don't smoke, what you do then? Um, and it's a classic, but I implore you to listen to this song as well. Yes, Adam is a wild dude in his videos and has a lot of great songs, but this is one that you hear either on Spotify or on SiriusXM first wave. Nick Hayward makes his first of two appearances on the countdown at number 16, this as a part of the band Haircut 100, as we talk about the song Fantastic Day. And we know that Haircut 100 had the song Love Plus One, which is a fun song. It was their one hit, if you will. And the video is pretty cool. But this had, you know, a slightly less bounce to it, but still a real charming feel to it. You have to remember, Haircut 100 wasn't around for long because of creative tensions, but this song, as well as Love Plus One and Favorite Shirts, are just fun songs, and especially if you've had a long Coming at number 15 is Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie. This is one of the more avant-garde Bowie tracks, and as he put it, he wanted to put the epitaph on the 70s for him. It was also a way of honestly closing the book on Major Tom, the character he invented in Space Oddity, which is a classic. Oh, and if you haven't seen the video to the song, oh dear God, what the fuck is wrong with you? The song is trippy enough, but the video is just a non-stop trip. I wouldn't call it a nursery rhyme, as some critics have called it, as much as I would a cult classic. Coming at number 14 is Thorn in My Side by The Arrhythmics. The song from 86 was a hit overseas, but stalled here because of the rise of glam rock. And you were starting to get a bit of a decline here. It's a song about an unfaithful lover, basically, and still per the usual, Annie has these really awesome vocals to go along with Dave Stewart's work on The Sims. Just a great tune to say the least. Coming at number 13 is Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads from their last album, Little Creatures. Now for those who don't know, and I've mentioned it here on the show, there's no chance in hell that David Byrne will reunite with his former bandmates. Not that he doesn't like them, he does. But he has moved on from that point in his career. This is a nice song that honestly doesn't get a lot of airplay unless it's a classic alt-rock outlet. Just the last sign of greatness from a band that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Coming in number 12 is the Cowboy Junkies, 1988 version of Sweet Jane. A lot of people know that I love Velvet Underground, as well as Lou Reed, who will be mentioned later on in the countdown. And this song has been remade several times, but this remake, definitely the best of them. Marco Timmons' haunting vocals really come to pass here. And this is a rarity for a band from the 70s or 80s, because they've had the same lineup since their inception together. All in all, just a great song that was remade into something even more special. Coming in at number 11 is Baggy Trousers by Madness from 1980. This was the song about Graham McPherson and Chris Foreman talking about their days in private school back in their youth. It's a fun, bouncy song as opposed to the more dark tone of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd. And yeah, it's one of those Scott alt songs from Britain that always gets a smile. The catch about Madness is that they had a quirky sense of humor to go along with their social commentary. It's cut for those of us who only know them for doing our house. We break into the top 10 with R.E.M.'s cover of The Click's Superman, which is actually one of the fun songs where Michael's type is not with lead vocals, this time it's Mike Mills. It's one of my personal favorites from the independent record syndicate era of R.E.M. actually. They were in IRS before they landed with Warner Brothers, and honestly, a lot of really good artists from the artists' stateside, as well as overseas, were on this label. Just a really good song, and although Stipe wasn't a fan of it, he at least was cool enough to provide background vocals. Coming in at number 9 is the Wall of Voodoo remake of Ring of Fire, one of the most iconic remakes of all time, of one of the most iconic songs of all time. So much in fact that Johnny Cash actually gave Wall of Voodoo's version his blessing. It takes the Johnny Cash classic and turns it into an alt-Sith synth five-minute epic. Mind you, it only really took off in Southern California, like on 91X and KROQ, but it shows a lot more depth beyond her one-hit Mexican radio, which is still an epic song in itself. Stanford Drain Company outdo themselves here. Coming in at number eight, is Punk Rock Girl by the Dead Milkmen. Yes, a satirical punk band from Philadelphia at the song out in 88. The video is silly, but honestly, it's still an awesome song from a band that honestly was a parody, as I said, of the punk bands of the late 70s. Basically, it's an ode to dating in Philly circa 88. It's a pop-punk alt sound that still has their comedic sensibilities in there as well. It's sad that this band didn't get a lot of attention except for college radio and a handful of alt-rock outlets, but their music does live on today in some classic rock alt-rock outlets that you can find. Coming at number seven is the aforementioned Lou Reed, I Love You Suzanne from 84. In 84, Lou decided to get into the mindset of the MTV generation and decided to do a sardonic love song, if you will. It's somewhat of Lou trying to tell his girlfriend at the time, hey, I can be romantic at times, but deep down, Lou has always had this cynical attitude in his music as well. 
It's honestly one of my favorite Lou Reed songs from the 80s where he was trying to work things through a different way, and it honestly works. Coming in at number six is Our Friends Electric by Tubeway Army. Ever wonder where Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, Ministry all got their inspiration musically? Here he goes. This really started off the alt synth deal. And this was before Gary Newman broke off from Two Way Army and had his lone one head cards. Just a really cool song ahead of its time. And it really came through for the new wave synth era. We break into the top five now with It Ain't What You Do, It's The Way That You Do It by Funboy 3 featuring Bananarama. This is way before Bananarama did Cruel Summer. Okay. This was the project that Terry Hall and Emerald Stapleton and Linville Golding did after they left the specials. This band was short-lived, but if you've heard the song Our Lips Are Sealed by the Go-Go's, Terry helped write that one as well, and it was originally done by Funboy 3. This song is really a cult favorite and one that I absolutely love. One of my personal go-to's first thing in the morning, basically. The aforementioned Ink Hayward lands as a solo artist in number four with Whisper Down the Wind. Nick came out with this gym that was intended for us to be for Haircut 100, but when they didn't record it, he took advantage of it and put it out himself. It's a nice sentimental song, it's very underrated, and its claim to fame was it was in the John Hughes film 16 Candles. So, really awesome song. Now we break into the top three with There's a Light That Never Goes Out by The Smiths. Yes, Morrissey, Mar and the Boys are here, and honestly, I was in complete shock with the, with, when this song that I've loved since my preteen years actually got played on the radio, because I really wasn't expecting it at all. You see, where it comes to The Smiths, it's always how soon is now. Or this charming man, Roy Thorne in his side. Not this track, though. The first time I heard it on the radio was on the aforementioned WVGO around 1992. And then when I was living out in, outside of Palm Springs, they had an alternative station. They played it in the middle of the night. I'm like, whoa. So you talk about shock. But this song is a classic, though. And it's a really awesome track. And it's rarely played, and honestly, it's a departure from the guitar hooks for about four minutes or so. Just a pleasant oddity from a band that was one of a kind. Coming in at number two is Planet Claire by the B-52s. Yes, the Anthems Georgia band that gave us Love Shack and Rock Lobster has a catalog that honestly should be treasured. And this is a track that will always get things going in the right direction. Groovy synths, great vocals, keyboards, just a really cool bass line, everything. And above all, a sample of what was due for this band down the road is honestly, this came out when the band was trying to take on the college radio airwaves, but well before their mainstream breakout. And at number one, it's a song by Thomas Dolby. And I know what you're thinking, Seth, gotta be hyperactive or she blinded me with science, right? Right? Actually, as much as I love those songs, no. One of our submarines was like a love letter to Dolby's uncle, who died 
as a submarine crewman in World War II. It's a great song from the golden age of wireless, which does include Planet Moon Science. All in all, it's my personal favorite. And there you go, my top 20 lesser-known classic alternative songs from the 80s. Now let's dig into some Q&A. Want to reach me for Q&A? You can find me at TrueSethDan74 on the Twitter machine. Question 1. Seth, your thoughts on a possible future for the Terminator franchise? Alright. Skydance Pictures holds all the cards, but after the failure of Terminator Dark Fate, I don't know what's going to happen next, as Dark Fate was supposed to start a new trilogy, and Paramount basically canned that idea after Dark Fate lost upwards of $130 million on the back end and didn't make that back, so the trilogy that was supposed to happen with Dark Fate being the first film, canceled. I would have to say it's completely dead in the water until until future notice, and that could take several years. Question 2. Seth, you seem like a fair-minded guy. What do you think will happen with Star Trek Picard? Right, let me be very candid here. Alex Kurtzman is responsible for what happened with the CBS On Access shows related to Star Trek. His attitude that he put out front politically telling Trump supporters not to watch his shows really hurt Star Trek in the long run, and it shows not only with Picard but Discovery as well, where the humanist ideas from 96 to 2005 were taken down. Now, with the combination of COVID, CBS All Access, soon merging into Paramount Plus, Patrick Stewart at 80 years old, it's hard to see this show surviving past the second season. It's a really good show, but would have done much better without Kurtzman trying to alienate people. Hopefully, though, after things work out with Bad Robot, Secret Hideout, and Paramount, as well as CBS, Viacom CBS, we can get things rolling again as far as films go and other ideas from Star Trek. Question 3, Sith, thoughts on Dave Meltzer? Now, there are times where I like his reporting, and I really do like his historical take on things. But if some of his takes in the last year or so, it's not who I really go to for at times for his opinions. Simply put, what he cheers at times with what AEW does today, he criticized WWF, now WWE, TNA, WCW, and ECW for in the past. I don't know how he reviewed AEW All Out, but I would hope his jaded AEW views would see the flaws even in that card. Now, Champ and I went into great detail on that last week, on what we liked and what we didn't like about that, so refer back to last Sunday's episode of the No Spots podcast for our feelings on AEW All Out. Question 4, Sith. Thoughts on what Intercom did with her alternative and country outlets? Um, I'm not surprised, nor will I be if they try it with other formats down the road. Essentially, here in RVA, the good news is that we still have Elliot in the morning from DC 101, which is an iHeart station, DC 101. But after Elliot and the class are off the air, we are basically sent over to Intercom owned. 92.3 WNYL out of New York, 
because of their idea of having WNYL and KROQ out of LA as their superstation outlets to provide most of the programming to other alternative outlets. And the big caveat here is that the jogs that were keeping HFS afloat on 104.9 out of Baltimore either got fired or reassigned. Sad, but I do understand the reasoning though, given that Intercom really had to put a dent in their debt issues. So there is that problem. Question 5. Sith. Of the alien franchise that you hold in deep appreciation, which film do you like the least out of the franchise? And don't count Alien vs. Predator in these films. Okay, Alien 3, but it's not a slight against it, though. It's not a slight against it. Okay, now, I know when I saw it opening night, I was livid with Raikkonen, the ending to Aliens, as well as the ending to the film as well. However, after a year or so after that, I actually marathoned the the then trilogy on VHS when I had the trilogy package and pan scan, and I started to slowly get into its corner. As I tell people, your love for Alien Covenant disregards your hate for Alien 3 and vice versa. Question 6. Sith, any spoilers as to what the bottom four films in the 31 films of the iconic horror slasher franchises that make you drink or have to wait till next month? Not going to ruin the surprise, but longtime listeners from Blog Talk already know where these films rank, so they have the inside track on the bottom four, but that's about it. Everything from the bottom four until the top five is complete chaos, because some rankings have dropped, some have risen. Y'all find out next month. Question 7, Sith. Any thoughts of re-watching Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park? Oh, hell no, you did not just go there, sir. Look, this film is well known for being something that VH1, doing a documentary aside, Gene, Paul, Peter, and Ace flat out refused to discuss this film in public unless it was either in the VH1 doc, behind the makeup, or in their tell-all books. I have a joke about this film, though. Want to make this film look good from 78? Let Ryan Johnson reboot it. He'll make it so bad that he'll make the original look like fucking Godfather for crying out loud. He might even make everyone except for the four main guys look like total adults in the process like he did Finn, Poe, and Rose Tico in The Last Jedi. Fuck me, dude. On to the next question. Question 8, Sith. Thoughts on why people so resoundingly hated last year's Charlie's Angels sequel continuation. You know, I caught this on demand, and honestly, it's a case of a story that was inferior to its previous incarnations. I love the original series and syndication, and honestly, I still enjoy the 2000 film as well as the short-lived revival on ABC that was gone in quick order because of low ratings. Full Throttle was okay, but definitely fell short of expectations after the 2000 film. Now, I don't think that the critics and fans that didn't like the film needed a lecture from the cast and crew. More on that later on. 
Question 9. Seth, thoughts on the repercussions on the speaking out movement that rocked professional wrestling? Well, I will say this, that I am proud of the victims that spoke out and were brave enough to do so. As champ, Dyna Wrestling, myself, and our friends over at the Three Count Podcast have said, our show is for everyone and we will continue to call out such heinous conduct in professional wrestling. I also hope that people will feel will continue to feel brave enough to speak out. Some of these wrestlers were trainers and abused their authority. It's sickening shit, man. Just sickening. In favor and final question for this evening is Seth. What would you say is your least favorite type of music? That's easy. The tear my beer, wife left me, took my truck and gun rack shit you get from old country music. As Howard Stern put it, maybe it's because I didn't sleep with my daddy's sister, but I just don't get it. Okay, now, there is some country I do like, but it's more the up-tempo type than the stuff where the guy's complaining about losing his woman. Get the fuck out of here with that, because I can't bear to hear a musician try to relate to me about it with a guitar because the woman loved him and took his truck and dog. Get out of here. Okay, now your stimulus update. Okay, the latest on the second round of stimulus is that we're actually dealing with a situation where the Problem Solvers Caucus have put up a proposal that starts at $1.5 trillion, but as measures, they will decrease it by $200 billion, or as measures that could kick it up to sure be around $2 trillion. It also has a measure in effect that, if needed, another round of checks will hit in March automatically, stimulus-wise. However, there's this possibility it doesn't get through Congress for the president to sign at all, because although this was an excellent strip out the pork proposal, this was done without any concessions to the lobbyists and special interests. It's why you're seeing Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer on the Sunday shows this weekend blasting the proposal saying it doesn't spend at least $2.2 trillion the Problem Solvers Caucus ripped out the pork. Okay, so Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, wants to have a deal done by the end of this coming week. Is it feasible? I'm not confident at all now. Because of the passing of Justice Ginsburg, people are in mourning. And also because you have people on the far right that are going to complain that it costs too much money. But you have people on the far left saying it doesn't go far enough in its cost. That Pelosi and Schumer gave away too much away. It's a lose-lose scenario sandbox fight, and here we are, you people looking for progress, and instead you have this fight like children fighting on a playground. You also have the issue that the Senate wants to go home on October the 2nd for another recess to go home and campaign. Whereas credit words do, Speaker Pelosi wants to keep the House in session until the deal is done. And the difference, the key difference in this round of checks is that adult dependents are getting $500 retroactive. Now, I'm not sure if that means that if you're an adult dependent, you're going to get two $500 checks or just one. That still isn't well known yet, but that's the key difference, okay? The levels are the same as before in the CARES Act. 1200 20, 
per single, 2400 for married. If you make up the 75000 you get the max if you're single. $150,000, you get the max if you're married. I know it's a far cry for adult dependents as to what the Heroes Act was depending, and it's on cocaine, Mitch's desk, desk Heroes Act-wise, where adult dependents get both $1,200 checks, but it's still a little something for this stage of the economy, and it helps. It's sad to see this all derailed, but we could get a major card thrown where Trump goes on his own if there isn't a deal by October the 1st and just throws out the checks. So hopefully we'll know more next week on the stimulus, but I will keep you posted. Rant time before we get out of here tonight. Okay, so I've been getting a lot of mail messages and a lot of questions as to when Hollywood is going to stop with these woke projects. Honestly, it's starting to slowly dissipate a bit here, and you can honestly see where. Where Sonic, when Sonic the Hedgehog dropped earlier this year, the critics and audiences, for the most part, loved it. Why? Because it wasn't bogged down with the woke shit that Hollywood has been spending a lot of time cramming down our throats the last few years. It wasn't bogged down with a lecture saying, we're better than you and you know it. Or a higher authority than you are, etc. It's also why Bill and Ted Face the Music was so good. They weren't trying to force this woke stuff down their throat with their wives and daughters, but proving more than, yes, females can be strong characters without being used as a political ploy. We start to wonder why Hollywood's having second thoughts in these projects. It all comes down to money at the end of the day. Most of the woke projects lost money, either trying to make back the budget on the film it costs to produce, and or on the back end where studios pay for marketing, prints, um, theater owners, foreign countries get their cut, the U.S. gets their cut, etc. And the truth be told is that studios get about two-thirds of the gross back because theater owners need their cut countries overseas. So when a film has a $75 million production budget, the actual break-in number is more towards $230 million because of all the fees on the back end. You see, the budget for the film only covers how much it costs to make the film. Filming, salaries to the cast and crew, any outside caterings, shooting locations, all of that stuff, equipment, everything. Now, a lot of these projects were rushed as an adverse reaction to two guys, primarily Donald Trump, but Bernie Sanders as well. But in doing so, it hurt several studios' bottom line as films either lost money, as I said, budget and or back-end wise. This is the casualty of what happens when Hollywood decides to go on a moral high horse about politics and alienates people. It also hurts in the streaming areas as well as you saw with CBS All Access Star Trek shows. Really good debut searches and views, but after people saw the content was more politicized, people tuned out. This also hurt where it came to streaming overseas as Amazon and Netflix are really starting to have second thoughts about the secret hideout Star Trek shows on CBS All Access. Now that this is all taking place, two years are starting to take are being a little bit more meticulous. 
You're still going to get this woke attitude and attacking the critics and audiences, but it's going to be less of a middle finger salute than it has been the last few years. It doesn't matter if it's Paul Fink's Ghostbusters, Terminator Dark Fate, Charlie's Angels, to a lesser degree, Birds of Prey, or CBS All Access versions of Star Trek. These projects are starting to cause a stir, and not how Hollywood thought they would. Yet, if Trump gets re-elected, Hollywood will panic and might try to throw more of this stuff out there. But the more people get lectured, the more they tune things out. So either Hollywood adapts to things, or pays the price down the road, and that's your first memo. And here is my latest take on the election before we get out here with the polls and everything. We're 44 days away before the election. As it stands tonight, the polls in some parts are starting to tighten. And this week, according to Rasmussen, Trump's job approval has spent all week above 50%, eclipsing the other morning at 53%, and all tie for the all-time high. The last time it got up to that was the morning it was announced, the morning after the announcement of an impeachment probe was being launched, an investigation. Now, for those who don't or for know or forgot their breakdown, it's 37% Democrat, 33% Republican, 30% Independent. This is alarming for Dems because the McMaster book that's due out, as well as the Woodward book, aren't having the impact that some wished it would be having. Also, in some areas, the economy is rebounding, and the violence that took over the protests are finally being squashed as well. So with the one poll that called the, elector- the electoral vote correct, as well as the popular vote without a large oversample, Trump is in pretty good position for re-election. So where do we go from here? Well, we're nine days away from the first debate between former VP Biden and President Trump. The debates will seal the deal from one ticket or the other at this point. Do I think it's going to be full of attacks? You better believe it. It might get downright ugly depending on the topics, moderators, etc. However, the debates I think will be the final call for who becomes president at the end of the day. Yes, both campaigns are geared up for a fight on November 3rd and ready to go to court. But one can hope one can hope that this isn't like Florida in 2000, where it took the Supreme Court to basically make the final call, and we spent four years the next four years calling Bush 43 illegitimate. Oh, wait a minute. In some circles, we've done that for the last 12 years as well. Some people call President Obama illegitimate, and now other people have called Trump illegitimate. I think that, yes, the race is starting to shift, though, in Trump's favor. And it's showing in polls now, even though Biden still leads. Why, you ask? Because the polls were always going to be, for the most part, heavily in Biden's favor with their polling samples. But if you rely heavily on 538, CBS, New York Times, ABC, NBC, Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, Fox News, etc. for your polling data, they won't publicly admit this, but they work with a heavy Democrat oversample, as they did in 2016 as well. This is not what is deemed by a lot of people to be fake polling. No, it's more so just polling that's heavily towards Democrats, is all. It's not fake as Trump would explain. You just have to remember that I've explained to you all how polling works. 
but did a predominant majority sample of the Rust Belt, rural areas, and the South, Trump would be a plus 15. If I pulled mainly urban population centers, the Northeast, the West Coast, and college campuses, Biden's a plus 15. Yale, keep a sharp eye on the following states. Arizona, New Mexico, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Carolina, Iowa, Virginia, Nebraska, and Indiana. Those are my hot states to watch on November the 3rd, as these 15 states will not only be hotly contested in my view, but likely be the crux as to who wins overall. Now, former Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton carried New Hampshire, Maine, Minnesota, Virginia, and New Mexico the last time around, and Trump carried Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Iowa, and North Carolina. The Biden picks off North Carolina, for example, which has 15 electoral votes. Trump would have to pick off New Mexico and Minnesota to get that equivalent of 15 votes to make up that loss equally. The Biden were to lose Virginia but pick up North Carolina, he has a net pickup of two electoral votes because Virginia has 13 electoral votes and North Carolina has 15. This election won't be for the weak of heart at all. And it's very possible it could land in several courts before all is said and done. Yeah, it, it could very well be all said and done. As I said, lawyers will try to find loopholes one way or the other to fight these results, whether you line up the votes for Biden or for Trump. The Biden camp can scream all day long about how they want, how we'll need the military to escort Trump out of the White House, but it was HRC herself that has told Biden that under no circumstances are you to concede. Defeat. The Trump camp can use that as well, but we know well that there is some within the Trump camp who won't accept the results fully of Biden wins. So it's a sticky situation as we get closer and closer to the election. And as I said, we're 44 days away in county. My advice is to ignore most of the media and listen to my analysis. I don't have a like for either candidate, which is how I can call things evenly. Oh, and if you think I like Senator Harris or Vice President Pence, dream the fuck on on that one because I don't like either one of them either. As I've told you, neither ticket will stand up for your several liberties at the end of the day and will try to strip out not only your constitutional rights in some regards, but also other freedoms as well. This is what happens when we get complacent with our political choices, folks. So, yes, complacency for politics is what we've allowed. So we deserve two crappy tickets going at each other. And this shit happens down ballot because we allow it to. So, it's top to bottom. So in closing, November 3rd does mean a lot, but again, if you're not going to go vote and are registered to vote and able to do so, don't come at me when shit goes sideways because you don't vote. You don't have the right to fucking bitch about it. And that's the memo. And so, 
that's all the time we have for you tonight here on Subspacement. I thank you very much for listening in tonight. And there are a lot of things happening here at True Radio Network that I need to bring to your attention real quick. First and foremost, check in at the bar radio. Why? Because earlier today, 151 and CP3, they've got new interviews with independent artists. So that's on their YouTube page. That's on their YouTube page. You can check them out there. Also, we dropped earlier this morning, the No Spots podcast. We did a weekend review. We had a little bit of wrap-up of day one of the G1 Climax as well. From New Japan Pro Wrestling and the NXT UK report is back. Coming this week to the network on Tuesday night at 8 p.m., CP3 has an exclusive interview with Senior VP of Media for the Washington football team, Julie Donaldson. It's going to be an amazing sit-down interview with the two of them, one-on-one. It's going to be like, that's Tuesday night at 8 p.m. This Sunday morning at 10 a.m. coming up, for no spots next week, what we have for you is our Week in Review, a little bit of a recap of G1 Climax, although not to mention we can get that as well on its own, as well as our preview and preliminary grades and predictions of WWE Clash of Champions, which is next Sunday on Pay-Per-View. Monday mornings at 10 a.m., the G1 Climax show with DC's People's Champ, where he has all of that covered for the G1 Climax New Japan Pro Wrestling. And next week in the basement, all new countdown, all new rants, all new Q&A, plus a stimulus and election update as well. And a special shout out to my friends over at the Starting Five podcast for having me on Wednesday night. Had a blast with the mayor and Katara. Love you guys, and thanks a lot for having me. And that's it for tonight here in the basement. Hope everyone has a great, safe week, and a very happy tomorrow to you. Good night, take care, peace out, and we will see you next Sunday night.